Everyone loves God's mercy when it's directed at them. But when those we hate find themselves in the crosshairs of total forgiveness, we struggle. Understandable, but that struggle is a dangerous one because Yahweh has always had more room at his table for penitent sinners than for judgmental saints. This is a story about running, about turning away from a God who defies our personal preferences, a God who asks unreasonable things, a God who loves our enemies. It's a story about the scandal of mercy, about the checkered hearts of the people of God, and about Yahweh's constant invitation to change. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Coastal morning, 6 a.m. The calls of seagulls bobbing in the harbor echo off the walls of the houses, while white-winged terns circle overhead, scanning the waters for unsuspecting prey. The edge of the Mediterranean laps against the limestone breakwater, releasing the tangy scent of the sea, whispering secrets about what lies beneath. Deckhands pile cargo onto waiting ships, crates full of bronze nails, jars of olive oil, ivory, woolen garments, barley, salted mutton. Like a double-file circuit of ants, other workers travel in the opposite direction from those same ships, unloading materials born from distant lands. Lebanese cedar, Egyptian gold, even from far-off Magan, diorite that unyielding stone favored by the Assyrians for their sculptures and reliefs, the ones depicting their violent kings and their horrific conquests of the nations to the east. A few blocks inland, amidst the crowded booths of the marketplace and the children crisscrossing the cobblestone street and the women and men gathered in impromptu morning councils, One man looks out of place. He cuts a straight line through the crowd, his gait swift, his expression edgy, eyes darting around as if he's expecting to be surprised. An attendant trails behind with a donkey, but the man does not look back. He walks along the main street, tracing the backbone of the 130-foot-tall ridge on which the city is built, spectacular views of the coastline stretching out to the left and to the right. If the stories are true, it's no wonder Noah's son Japheth chose this spot on which to build a town after the Great Flood. From the look on this man's face, you'd think he was running from a flood. Down the steps and to the harbor, along the water's edge, scanning the docks for the largest ship. That one. It looks as though it could cross the entire length of the sea, like it could ferry someone to another world. 
I want to hire this ship, the man says. A sweaty sailor, perhaps, turns from the trunk he just heaved from his shoulder, studies the man for a moment, scanning him for signs of wealth, a reason to take seriously his request. Satisfied, he points over his shoulder to where the captain is. The captain balks, no doubt, at the man's proposition. They've just arrived from Tarshish, and the ship needs to wait for a return trip's worth of cargo before they unmoor. That could take months. And his crew wants time to blow off steam and enjoy their wages. But the man does not seem deterred. He wants to leave now. A different tack, then. Do you know how long it would take you to sail to Tarshish and back? He sneers. Three years. I said I want to hire this ship. The captain eyes him. That would be expensive. Just then, a servant approaches with a donkey. The man nods to the servant, who flips open one of the saddlebags to reveal a hoard of shining ingots. Surveying the stranger with fresh interest, the captain asks, What is your name? The man glances side to side once more as if he's afraid of being overheard. Jonah, he says. My name is Jonah. Up, Jonah. That was how the command from Yahweh began. Abrupt, concise, unfaltering. And if the message had continued with different words, if the God of heaven and earth had given Jonah another mission, perhaps the startled son of Amittai would have obeyed. But Yahweh asked an unreasonable thing. Go to Nineveh, that great metropolis, and condemn it, because their evil has ascended before me. Nineveh, that famed center of the Assyrian Empire, a city that cultivated bloodthirsty, depraved men and women renowned the world over for their brutality and sadism. For generations, stories have circulated about the methods of Assyrian conquest. Their famed king, Ashur Nasirpal II, boasted on one of his monuments, I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. I made a pillar of their bodies, and I bound their heads to tree trunks around the city. And all of this while the Ninevites vaunt their beloved patron deity Ishtar, the Queen of Heaven, they call her. Disgusting. And terrifying. It's difficult not to picture his own head strapped to the trunk of an ash tree in Nineveh. No prophet of Israel has ever been asked to go to a foreign nation and preach. Talk about them in an oracle, certainly, but talk to them. Tell them to their faces how sinful they are and regale them with visions of the divine judgment to come? Why would Yahweh? Jonah does get up, but then promptly flies to the port city of Joppa to find a ship on which he can sail to Tarshish, an exotic outpost he's only heard about, a city on the edge of the world, as far as he can get from Israel, where Yahweh dwells where you're apparently in constant danger from hearing from him. Tarshish is even further, thankfully, from Nineveh, as far as the west is from the east. 
As Jonah boards the ship and descends below decks, he overhears the crew, no doubt, murmuring about the dangers of a trip this long, sees them raising good luck charms to their lips, making a sacrifice even, perhaps, to some marine god, an appeal for fair weather, for an uneventful trip, for none on board to be lost at sea. Their prayers will not be answered. At the edge of the harbor, the oars are pulled in, the two square sails are hoisted, and Jonah is spirited away. But as the ship's bow points westward, Yahweh conjures a response to Jonah's disobedience. Once the ship is well away from Joppa, too far to easily turn back, ominous clouds gather on the horizon. Before long, the sky becomes the color of ash, the sailors regarding it nervously as the wind picks up and whitecaps bedeck the tips of the jagged waves. With shouts from the captain, the crew scrambles to lower and secure the sails. The firmament then finally tears apart sheets of rain descending from the angry heavens. Yahweh whips the sea into a frenzy, enormous swells creating a gauntlet of hills and valleys, pulling the vessel skyward and then yanking it toward the depths, water crashing over the railings and spreading greedily across the deck. The whistling gusts pull at the mast, its timber groaning in protest. Knots come undone and lines thrash helplessly in the gale. Sailors grimace as sounds of splintering wood rise from below decks. The eyes of the sculpted horsehead adorning the prow of the ship look crazed in the flashes of lightning as if the ship itself were spooked, threatening to burst apart. Terrified, the men begin praying, screaming prayers to their gods, to Yom or Baal or Anat, holding their talismans aloft, squinting up into the deluge, their cries carried away by the wind. But despite their pleas, the sea seems to be rising. That or the ship is descending. The ravenous waves chomp at the gunwale, the riding too low in the water. Jettison the cargo, the captain screams. The sailors comply, grabbing whatever's close and tossing it over the sides. Others stagger down the ladder into the hold, forming a human chain and heaving one crate after another along the line, up and out of the hold, across the deck and into the sea. First boxes full of spare rigging and canvas to repair the sails. Then, as the storm continues to pummel the ship, the desperate sailors begin grabbing more valuable cargo. Casks of beer, sacks of grain, even jugs of fresh water, and hurling them overboard the foaming mane gulping all of it down, still not satisfied. Even the helmsman joins in the efforts, having lashed the helm to heave to a sort of autopilot that will keep the bow pointed into the wind, he's left his normal post and now works feverishly among the sailors below decks, sweating and lifting and grunting and praying. And then, back toward the corner of the hold, he lifts a trunk or a tangle of lines, or a case of mead, and reveals the unmistakable shape of a stowaway. A man curled up, asleep of all things, in the shadowy depths of the ship's belly. But when the helmsman grabs the man to rouse him, he sees this is no stowaway. It's the man who hired the ship. Groggy, Jonah opens his eyes to find the helmsman glowering down at him. 
beside himself. How can you be sleeping? Up, cry to your god. Perhaps the deity will have mercy on us so that we're not destroyed. Something in Jonah's eyes tells the helmsman that this man and his god are not on speaking terms. With every ounce of expendable cargo gone and the storm still raging, the mariners brainstorm. Come, they shout to one another, let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. Jonah swallows hard. One of the men produces a pouch and with the rain beating against the hull of the ship and every sailor grabbing for support as it pitches and rolls, an item is collected from each of them, something small, their talisman or a coin or a button. The items are dropped into the pouch and the pouch, open at the top, is shaken, gently at first, then more and more forcefully until one of the objects is shaken out of the vessel. It falls through the air, skitters across the creaking floorboards, and finally comes to rest, revealing its ownership. Every face snaps toward Jonah. A barrage of questions then drowns out the sound of the storm. Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. Where are you from? What is your occupation? What country do you claim? Who are your people? The jig is up. I am a Hebrew, Jonah shouts over the wind, and I worship Yahweh the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Dread sprawls across the crew's faces. People talk about the Hebrew God. They tell hushed stories still about what he did in Egypt centuries ago. The whole world has heard rumors of Yahweh's staggering might, his limitless scope. Most pray they never have to find out if the rumors are true. The runaway prophet then confesses to the sailors why he hired the ship, detailing his desertion, the crime to which they are accomplices, an offense that clearly has awakened the great Yahweh's wrath. What have you done? They gasp. And then, as if struck by a sudden revelation, what should we do to you to calm this sea that's against us? Even as they ask it, the sea's fury grows worse. Jonah's mind races. So this is it, the end game. Escape was always a long shot. This, this was always what he suspected it would come to. He would force Yahweh's hand, make Yahweh kill him because he would rather die than risk his life in a pagan land for a pagan people. There is no saving himself here. Yahweh has cornered him, and the only alternative to being trapped in a world where God makes Jonah travel to Assyria is death. So be it. There is, though, an opportunity to contain the collateral damage, to save these innocents from the judgment he's earned, to surrender himself as a sacrifice for these men to offer. Jonah takes a deep breath. Pick me up and fling me into the sea so that it might quiet down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this violent storm that is against you. Shocked, the mariners refuse Jonah's idea, opting instead to grab the oars and row for land. But the sea will have none of it. Somehow it gets worse as they row, as if with every stroke of the oars they were prodding a tiger, making it angrier, inviting retaliation. 
Finally, there is nothing else to do. They take Jonah and lead him up to the weather deck. Thunderclaps and flashes of lightning welcome them into the fullness of the tempest. Please, Yahweh, the pagan soldiers cry to the god Jonah has yet to address. Do not let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. This is your will. With that, four men grab Jonah, one at each of his limbs, his wrists and ankles held in the vice-like grip of the sailors, their hands on him like the priest's hands on an offering. Jonah's face pointed toward the heavens, pelted by the torrent. Jonah's world swings left and then right and then left again when suddenly his wrists and ankles are free. Sailors peer over the edge of the tossing ship, Jonah's flailing body helpless against the pull of gravity. It slaps against the churning waves and the sea opens its mouth to receive him. And then, as soon as Jonah's outstretched hand slips below the surface, the wind, the rain, the waves stop. The ship's crew stares agape at the water, placid, only a few gentle ripples pushed out by the hull as the ship comes to a rest, wrinkling the shadow of the mast. A shadow, the sun is out, shining happily in the cloudless sky. Yahweh is satisfied. And the sailors, the sailors are afraid, terrified more terrified than they were at any point in the storm, blinking as salt water drips like oil from their beards, raindrops from their fingertips like holy water. Without a word, they scatter and locate what precious bit of food remains on the ship, a goat, some grain perhaps. They build a makeshift altar and offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth and the sea and who knows what else. As the smoke rises, so do the fervent words of new vows. Every veteran sailor giddy with near-death energy, every hardened face softened by the mystery, the excitement, the irresistibility of something new. Meanwhile, Jonah's arms and legs continue to thrash involuntarily, but now under the water. The sea is calm, but Jonah cannot swim. There is no coordinated movement of his arms, drawn together toward the surface, pushed apart in a wide arc, and then drawn together again. No confident alternating kicks ushering him to the hospitality of the atmosphere. All of Jonah's frantic effort is misguided, fruitless, vain. 17 seconds. Jonah slips down further and further, falling in slow motion toward the seafloor. The deepest point in the Mediterranean is 17,280 feet below the surface. 
over three miles down. It is not that deep here, but it must feel like it is. 55 seconds. The water grows darker, veiling the bright blue skies above. 87 seconds. The instinct to hold one's breath underwater is greater even than the pain of suffocation. But as the seconds tick by and Jonah's agony crescendos, his reflexes finally trigger a breath in a desperate attempt to rid his blood of the surplus carbon dioxide and replace it with oxygen. Jonah gasps, inhaling violently. But for every oxygen molecule that floods into his body, two hydrogen molecules follow. Unable to sift the water for what they need, his swamped lungs shut down, and now they cannot transfer to the blood what little oxygen they have left. Jonah now begins drowning in earnest. Half-conscious, six liters of liquid inside of him, salt burning his panicked eyes, he sees a shape moving through the dark blue expanse before him. An enormous creature, larger than Jonah, larger than the ship floating up on the surface, a blur of fins and colors undulates through the water, its massive tail, how much of it is tail, whipping up and down or left and right, its mouth open wide. With the last bit of energy Jonah has left, he flinches, surely, as the monster charges and closes its jaws around him. Finally, it is finished. Everything is black. Jonah cannot tell if his eyes are open or shut. Everything is quiet. The murmur of a heartbeat, the gentle sloshing of fluid. Everything is tight around him, like an unflinching embrace like a womb. Jonah struggles to push the haze from his mind, to put together lucid thoughts. He escaped. He drowned. He was eaten. He succeeded, opted out of Yahweh's outrageous plan, forced the God of Heaven's hand, made him levy execution as a penalty for desertion. He tricked Yahweh into giving him what he wanted, death rather than the suffering or humiliation waiting for him in Nineveh. He did it. Right? No, this is not death. There are too many smells. How dare he? Jonah writhes, kicking and screaming, objecting to this purgatory. He wanted to die. The wrestling continues, but 
the enfeebled Jonah gives out after an unimpressive fit. He stops kicking, silences his muffled screams, lies in quiet as the minutes and hours pass, as his will to die fades. Jonah sleeps and wakes and sleeps and dreams. Dreams, perhaps, of falling, of drowning, of the way he felt when he finally faced a martyr's death, sacrificing his life on the altar of his own preference. It did not feel good. Days pass by, and in the darkness, metamorphosis. Finally, Jonah speaks to Yahweh. You had me cast down to the deep, into the heart of the sea, where the river swirled about me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. The deep, it enveloped me. Seaweed had wrapped around my head to the base of the mountains I had descended, to the land whose bars would trap me forever. And then Jonah takes a breath. How he's able to breathe in this place is a miracle. Oxygen fills his lungs, doing its simple, incredible work, cleansing his blood of the poison carbon dioxide. Yahweh watches intently and sees Jonah's face soften. Then you restored my life from the pit, Yahweh, my God. My petition reached you. Those who worship useless idols forsake their experience of mercy. But as for me, with a grateful voice, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Tears perhaps gather in the corners of Jonah's eyes as he realizes the next thing he wants to say to his God. Deliverance belongs to Yahweh. At this, Yahweh speaks to the beast. Like a dog called by its master, it jerks its head skyward, swings its tail, and makes for the surface, racing through the water, the sea boiling in its wake, its eyes narrow as it approaches the coast. Suddenly, Jonah, after a three-day journey from the edge of death, is delivered onto dry land. He tumbles from the creature's gaping mouth, stinking and soaked, slime smeared in his hair like amniotic fluid, blinking in the sunlight like a newborn. Behind him, Jonah hears the sound of wriggling and splashing, and then the sea is quiet. 
it's over. And he didn't have to go. It worked after all. Yahweh saw reason. The Assyrians can go. But then Jonah hears a voice thunder from the sky above him. Hey, Justin here. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories Season 2. I hope you enjoyed Part 1 of The Pushover, The Runaway, and The Belly of the Beast. I have been hard at work the last couple of months, and I'm so excited to be back in the rhythm of sharing these stories with you. Thanks so much for listening and for sharing this podcast with other folks. Your enthusiasm gives me so much joy. Now, for those of you who are patrons of Holy Ghost Stories on Patreon, I have something I think you are going to love. It is a conversation I had with Dr. Youngblood, Dr. Kevin Youngblood, an Old Testament and Hebrew professor who wrote my favorite commentary on the book of Jonah. I picked his brain in preparation for this episode and and for the next one as well. And man, his brain is wonderful. (laughs) I hate that you couldn't be a part of it uh, because I think you would have loved it. But here's the thing. I recorded the whole thing and got Dr. Youngblood's permission so that I could share it with you. Now, you'll need to be a patron to watch or listen, but I will make a few minutes worth of it available to non-patrons who want to check it out. I'm telling you, do not miss this. Of course, uh, patrons will also find the usual goodies over on Patreon, the full script of this episode, insider notes with some fascinating tidbits, uh, a discussion guide to use with friends or a small group or a Bible class, or to take you deeper in your own study as you process this story. Uh, There's all kinds of good stuff. All of that and my conversation with Dr. Youngblood will be available the day after this episode drops, Tuesday, July 20th, 2021. Just head to patreon.com slash holyghoststories, patreon.com slash Holy Ghost Stories. And finally, huge props and gratitude to the Tours on Patreon. Ken and Patty, Luke and Haley, Mindy, Maddie, Eric and Jody, John, April, Sarah, Ricky, Brandy, Steve, Kimmy, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Jamie H., Bill and Trina, Stephen, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan, and Jamie M. You guys are the best. Till next time.